we have been cruising along in the book of Acts at a pretty fast pace. This book of the Bible is so loaded with important and intensely practical truths. And most of the time, I want to spend more time on every verse to drink as deeply as possible. But the fast pace helps us to feel breathless as we ought to feel as we go through this book and to hit the major points. And so this morning, Acts 13, verses 13 to 52, is just so chock full of good stuff. And I'm going to skip way more that I'm going to cover. Uh, I have way more notes than we'll be able to, to do in one shot. And so I'm going to encourage you this week to read it uh, over and over and to be encouraged and convicted in countless ways. So we're going to dig in. Uh, before we go to the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Lord, how wonderful it is that you would speak to us in abundance. Uh, you are God who is not silent, uh, but who has spoken again and again throughout the ages. And we now have such ready access to your word. We can open it in our laps, open it in our apps to take it with us everywhere we go uh, and to let you continue to speak to us. Uh, cause us then not to be ignorers of your word, but to delight in the opportunity uh, to read your word and to know of the God who speaks by his word. And so we pray that you would send your spirit now uh, to bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word as we pray for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Let's get right to it. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. Listen again to God's inerrant word. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel, as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you, God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, the main account will begin at verse 14, but it is important that we not miss two key things from verse 13. Go back to that verse and notice first the change that takes place in leadership. The beginning of chapter 13 told us that the church in Antioch had sent off Barnabas and Saul, among others. Verse 9 of this chapter tells us that Saul is renamed Paul, and that's how he's referred to from here on out. But in verse 13, it changes from Saul and Barnabas, uh, or Barnabas and Saul who go out, to Paul and his companions. Paul is now the leader, and Barnabas becomes second fiddle. If you didn't already think highly of Barnabas, you should now. Barnabas, we are told at the end of chapter 4, sold a field he owned and put the money from the sale at the apostles' feet. His very name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. He encourages others. 
Barnabas is the one who is sent from the church at Jerusalem to the church at Antioch, where in chapter 11, he's described as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And he sees a church comprised of people who are not his people. And he is glad at the way God's grace is there. And then Barnabas doesn't try to become the super pastor of this church at Antioch, but goes to Tarsus to get Saul Paul in order to co-pastor this church for the glory of God rather than the glory of self. And now Paul is the clear leader by God's design and the encourager is asked to play a supporting role. Somebody once poetically quipped, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. When you are asked to play the second fiddle, to support leadership, think of Barnabas. And then secondly, notice the phrase, the last phrase of verse 13, John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now that John is also known as Mark, John Mark, uh, the author of that gospel, according to Mark. He's also the cousin of Barnabas. And John Mark leaves, but Barnabas stays. Much speculation as to why John Mark decided to leave at that point. Perhaps he was just homesick and he wanted to go back uh, to people that he knew. Perhaps he felt like they should have stayed in Pamphylia longer and they've decided uh, to go on. We're going to come back to this event at chapter 15 when it comes up as an issue between Paul and Barnabas at the start of their second missionary journey. But at this point, and even there, we will affirm that different people have different callings to go in different directions. And on a morning when we are going to celebrate our graduates and recognize their graduation and their next steps, we give thanks for the variety of callings God places on us. They are all good callings. They're all good mission fields. We simply need to decide what's right for the group, decide what's right for things that the church might do together in a particular time and place. And so let's press on to the major portion of this passage and the sermon in the synagogue. That's just fun to say. The sermon in the synagogue that begins at verse 14, where Paul and his companions go to Pisidian Antioch. It's different from the Antioch in Syria, which is the church that sent them, just like Butler, Pennsylvania is not the only butler in the United States or even in the world for that matter. So in this town of Antioch in Pisidia, they go to the synagogue and after the reading from the law and prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Little did they know what they were getting themselves signed up for. Clearly things ran a bit different in the synagogues than certainly in our churches today. And yet similar It was the pattern that after having two scripture passages read, one from the law, the books of Moses, and then one from the prophets, that the synagogue leaders would invite someone to give exposition. We remember the occasion when Jesus was at the synagogue in Nazareth, and after a reading from Isaiah 61, Jesus stood up and said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, we're a bit more organized decently and in order kind of stuff, right? Most churches have a regular preacher, pastor, or regular supply pastor, and occasionally the leadership might approve ahead of time someone to come and preach. We tend not to simply read a passage and then say to the crowd, anybody got some exposition for that? What is the same, though, is that we start with the scriptures. We start with God's word and then give exposition 
about the portion of word that was read. Don't speak about a topic and maybe pull in some scripture passages, cherry-picking here and there. The point of the scripture becomes the point of the sermon. And so what follows then is a sermon with an introduction, four points, and a conclusion. The sermon introduction is pretty short, but important. Verse 14, or verse 16, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. That's it. That's the introduction. But what it shows is that Paul knows his audience. He recognizes to whom he is speaking, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, non-Jews ethnically, who study the scriptures. They're not ethnically from Israel, and they're not obedient to the ceremonial laws of Jewish law like circumcision. But when we speak God's word, we are to know our audience. This summer, I'm going to have the opportunity uh, to speak to junior high students at Seneca Hills, and I'm going to speak at uh, Presbytery Kids Camp to elementary students. And how I speak there will be very different than how I speak here with a mixed group at Westminster on any given Lord's Day. At Westminster, even as the church changes over the years, the preaching changes to an extent. Preaching to believers is different than preaching to unbelievers. Preaching to pastors is different than preaching to parishioners. Preaching at a presbytery meeting is different than preaching to a church on a Sunday morning. And so in this case, Paul is preaching to those who study the Old Testament scriptures. And so to the Old Testament scriptures, Paul goes. In particular, in verses 17 to 22, he presents what is called the kerygma, as opposed to the didache. Stick with me here. <laughs> kerygma means proclamation, a proclamation of the facts. That's what Paul does here. It's what Peter did in the Pentecost sermon. It's what Stephen did in his uh, speech. Didache means teaching, the ethical and moral instruction that arise from the kerygma. It's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. James Montgomery Poise in his commentary says, obviously the reason the disciples began with the kerygma is that they knew, as we should also know, that a person must first come to Jesus Christ as Savior before he or she can take on the burden of his teachings. It is true that we cannot have the one without the other, but unless a person first believes on Jesus as his or her Savior, and thus has the new life of Christ within, that person cannot even begin to live the life Christ commanded. Our goal is never simply moralistic preaching or uh, behavior modification, but to share redemptive teaching, heart modification. We present Christ, and it is Christ who changes the hearts. Morality, ethics, application of the text is important, but we start with the facts of the text itself. Those of you who uh, grew up in a previous generation remember the TV show Dragnet. Even if you've never seen the show, you recognize the theme song, right? Dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 there it is, yep. And you remember Joe Friday, uh, police officer Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. And yes, I know that he actually never said that phrase, he said it in a variety of ways, but that became the sort of uh, conglomeration of that and the, uh, the popularization of a catchphrase, just the facts, ma'am. Joe Friday, this get to business police officer, officer, just the facts. All we want is the facts. The Apostle Paul presents just the facts, the kerygma. 
In verse 17, he first talks about the choosing of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the book of Genesis. And then he goes on the rest of that verse to talk about the Exodus. And then in verse 18, it's Moses and the promised land as revealed in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then it's the conquest recorded in Joshua. And then he talks about the judges and those from First and Second Samuel. And then he talks about the kings and prophets, and particularly the first two from the first 80 years of Israel as that united kingdom. And as far as the Jews were concerned, that's really where the Old Testament kerygma ends, the high point of King David waiting then for another David to come. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So after presenting the Old Testament kerygma, the Old Testament facts, Paul briefly presents the facts of the New Testament. It's also what Peter did back in chapter 5. It's a summary statement similar to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. He's now reporting about the 35-year time period from Jesus' birth to his death and resurrection and his ascension. And it's now 15 years past the ascension. Paul is presenting the New Testament kerygma, the agreed-upon facts of the apostles. So it's still not his opinion or his own rendering. It's why it's so important that the church community have agreed-upon statements on the facts of the text. Some disagreements can come in the application, morals and ethics, but at the heart is the agreement of the text itself. What liberal scholarship did a century ago was to begin by dismissing the sayings of Jesus, saying that those were not historically really sayings of Jesus. And then they suggested that Paul didn't write most of the letters attributed to Paul, and really what they began to do is to question all the authorship of all the books of the Bible. Ultimately, they went on to discredit all of Scripture, saying it was not given by inspiration of God, but perhaps men who were humanly inspired to write down some things from their own personal point of view. And so by questioning the authority of the authorship of the Bible, the text itself was dismissed. And the historical facts were then questioned, bringing in even other texts as equally authoritative. They might say, hey, we found something in an Egyptian text that says something different than the biblical text. Who's to say the Egyptians weren't right? Well, true scholarship has always recognized that these supposed academic theories don't truly hold water. But the damage is done when you question the facts because it returns everything to personal choice, which is really the original sin. J.C. Ryle says, wisely, ignorance of scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. And so the facts, as Paul presents them, attempts simply to show that just as God had done things in the Old Testament, God has now done some new things. In verse 26, Paul again recalls the audience, brothers, children of Abraham, God-fearing Gentiles, and he's talking to both those groups equally. Paul and the other apostles highlight four key facts. And in our own evangelism, it is often appropriate to run through these same facts. We begin first with the promise and the need of a Messiah connects to Old Testament truth, that God had promised a Messiah would come. And then secondly, the suffering and sacrifice of Christ. And then third, his resurrection. And fourth, the testimony and witness to the resurrection as evidence in our own changed hearts and lives. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He talks about John the Baptist who announced the appearance of the Messiah. 
connecting to the Old Testament promises. Then in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, which is at the heart of the gospel, speaks of Jesus' burial and his resurrection, and then the witnesses to it. These are the facts. Christianity is not merely a philosophy or set of moral ethics. It is a proclamation of what God has done in creation, the fall, redemption through Jesus Christ, and restoration, the Holy Spirit applying the redemption accomplished by Christ into every aspect of life and existence. Whether we like it or not, Christianity brings us face-to-face with facts. Christianity doesn't need new ideas, but a faithful accepting and proclaiming of unchangeable facts. And so having proclaimed Old Testament kerygma facts and New Testament kerygma facts, the third point of his sermon is a selection of supportive biblical texts in order to connect the Old Testament and New Testament kerygmas. The Old Testament said this, and the New Testament agrees in this. That's what Peter and Stephen also did in their sermons. And there's four texts that he's going to draw from. Uh, The second psalm, speaking of uh, the father uh, to the son, and so God is the father to Jesus. And then speaking of the promise to David in Isaiah 55, a promise fulfilled in Jesus. And then returns to the psalms, Psalm 16, verse 10, about not seeing decay, Jesus who was buried but then was resurrected. And then finally, he's going to come to Habakkuk 1, which we'll see in a moment as part of his conclusion. And so having the Old Testament, the New Testament, connecting the two together, Paul gives then a presentation of the gospel in verses 38 and 39. As Christians, we already begin to put the pieces together, but notice that Paul doesn't really present the gospel until verse 38 and does so with that key word, therefore. Having said all this, Therefore, here's what I'm driving at. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then Paul really gets to the heart of the gospel in verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Justification by faith alone. Sola fide. By faith and not by works justified by Jesus. It is then said that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That's right. We have sinned, but Jesus bore our punishment and credits us with his perfection. We are Adam and Eve before the fall, but even better credited with Christ's righteousness and understand the odiousness of sin and the extensive love of God. And so what Paul then does is a sermon conclusion with a pointed warning towards that gathered audience. Verses 40 and 41 give a warning to take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. If you come over to the Ledford house, you will see that verse up on the wall in our family room. It's actually a verse that speaks to the fall of Jerusalem as judgment upon rebellious Israel, and it shows God to be a God of grace and of righteous judgment. It's the encouragement, do not reject the forgiveness of God that he offers in Christ, or you will be judged. So there's really two choices. 
judgment by rejecting Jesus or salvation by believing Jesus. And the response that we read here is remarkable. In verses 42 and 43, Paul and Barnabas get invited back to speak further the next week. Certainly throughout that week, Paul and Barnabas then had many conversations with various people. The text does not say that they had an altar call, that hundreds came forward to be saved as they sang, just as I am. But they were invited back to speak further. And so we remember that a response to the gospel doesn't always come from the first hearing. We need to allow people the time to process, especially the paradigm-shaking truth of the gospel. We share it, we minister to it, and we give space for people to wrestle with the Holy Spirit and the word revealed. And so the rest of the passage, beginning at verse 44, tells us about the second Sabbath, when almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The city in Antioch was largely a Gentile city, with a Jewish contingent and the God-fearing Gentiles. And so the second Sabbath saw everyone from the city showing up to a synagogue that most of them had probably never stepped foot in and to which they probably never knew that they could be welcome. So why do they come now? They didn't come at an expectation of entertainment or because of some rumors of some bizarre people who were going to do some crazy things. There were no giveaways to attract visitors. Four times... The text emphasizes that the people came to hear the word of God. Verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They didn't come to hear some awesome dynamic preachers. They came to hear the preaching, not the preachers. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. That's what they came to do, and that's what they did, speak the word of God. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. They didn't honor the word of Paul or the word of Barnabas, but the word of the Lord. And then verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the region. People weren't talking about Paul and Barnabas. They were talking about the word of the Lord. So it's not about appealing to felt needs or using worldly gimmicks to get people to come. For what you win them with is what you win them to. The message of the Jews was justification by observing the law. If you're good enough long enough, then you might be okay. Paul says you cannot be justified by obedience to the law. And he says that in a Jewish synagogue. (laughs) Talk about countercultural. And the message of the Jews, I think in many ways, is still the prevailing message today. All that's changed is what constitutes the law to be observed. Today, it's not Jewish ceremonial law. It's the humanistic laws of tolerance, inclusivity, and honoring identities. The gospel is about acceptance, but not acceptance that comes from within, but outside ourselves is an acceptance justified, found righteous by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's why the prosperity gospel is so popular and is the antithesis of the true gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if you have enough faith, then you may be blessed. The true gospel says, it is because of Christ that we might receive any blessing at all. A blessing that has nothing to do with us. It's a blessing that is outside of us. 
and is solely a gift of grace that cannot be earned in any way. And so verse 45 tells us about the jealousy of the Jews. Why are they not excited that the town has come to the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord? Well, it's because they're never excited about Gentiles. Even God-fearing Gentiles are kind of like those, well, they're okay because they're, you know, they're trying. But not until you're really Jewish can you really sit next to me. They're jealous also because of the loss of power and influence. We've never had the whole town show up to hear us teach. Let me say at this point, it's okay if I'm not your favorite preacher. I'm not my favorite preacher. <laughs> we listen to podcasts and go to conferences to hear R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller, Sinclair Ferguson, Jen Wilkin, Nancy Lita Moss, Ed Welch, David Pollison. I pay money too to hear those guys speak. But don't go to hear Joel Austin, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, and Benny Hinn. That's not ego. That's just to stay away from those guys. It's false teaching, but our passage doesn't say the Jews were concerned about the danger of false teaching. They saw the crowds and were filled with jealousy because of the crowds. And so they talked abusively about the teaching. To this, Paul appeals to the passage we read earlier in the service from Isaiah 49. Not only should the Jews have been rejoicing that the Gentiles are responding to God's word, they were to be the ones shining the light to the Gentiles. The word came to the Jews first that they might show it and share it with the Gentiles. And instead they have rejected it. And so the Gentiles rejoice in hearing that salvation is for them. And verse 48 concludes, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The King James translates that word as ordained. As many as were ordained for eternal life believed. It is the doctrine of predestination, and you don't have to go to Romans 8 to see it. It's clearly right here. In fact, the word is a passive participle in the perfect tense. And all the students just had like a flashback to a grammar test, right? What it means that it's in the passive tense is it's something done for us, and that it's in the perfect tense means that it is a past action that has a present effect. In the past, God has appointed, ordained those who will come to believe. That's the doctrine of election. The good news is that we simply speak the word of God and those whom God has already ordained to hear it and receive it and respond to it will. So we honor the word of the Lord. We want others to, re to honor the word of the Lord because it is the Lord and his word that then is the means to receive that grace from the Lord. People are not saved by powerful preaching or personalities, or gimmicks, or entertainment, or flashing lights and fog machines. People are saved by the word of the Lord. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to those who God has ordained to believe. As John Bunyan says from Pilgrim's Progress, is there anything more worthy of our tongues and mouths than to speak of the things of God and heaven? And so it's never our job to speculate who may receive who might be ordained, only God knows. It is simply our job to speak the word of the, of the Lord. That's it. God does the rest. Some will receive it. Others will reject it. And we are told the word spread. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. And when we think about who we want to speak the word to, 
who we want to share it with, and who we most hope will receive it. Is it not often those who are in high standing and the leaders? And yet throughout redemptive history, throughout church history, and still today, it is commoners, not high society that is most receptive to the gospel. Our human instinct regards one group as better than the other, and we often neglect a group because of it. But God's grace is unconditional. It is not only for the elite. It is not only for the common. And you can never guess who's going to respond to God's grace, so we share it with everyone. And if one group rejects it, so be it. We will simply rejoice that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Not every single person believes, but the whole region is affected. The kingdom of God advances, whether those of high standing receive it or not. And so in humility, let us show and share the light of the gospel with all people. And by God's great grace, those who have been appointed to eternal life will believe, saved not by obedience to the law, but by Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And so may the truth set us free. Amen.